Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 122 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author and PR consultant and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content events and training platform providing success strategies for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. Now, just quickly, before we jump into the main part of the show, I wanted to let you know about my online PR course and group coaching program, Vegans in the Limelight. Now, this is a 12-month online program where you have video training that teaches you everything you need to know about how to do your own PR. You can ask questions on the platform and you can also post your proposed pitches and media releases before sending them to journalists to get my feedback. You also get to jump on a monthly live group call where you can ask whatever questions you want about your business and you can get tailored help from me on anything to do with raising the profile of your brand. So it might be that I look at your website and give you some feedback or how to improve your LinkedIn profile and other marketing and PR topics. So if you'd like to find out more about that, just hop on over to veganbusinessmedia.com and you'll see a link there for Vegans in the Limelight. And now on to the main part of the show. In this episode, which was recorded live in person in New York at the inaugural Plant-Based World Conference and Expo, I interview Michael Schwartz, founder of Treeline Tree Nut Cheese in upstate New York. Michael's discovery of the cruelty involved in dairy production and the harm animal agriculture causes to the environment were key drivers for his decision to give up not just milk, but his entire career as an intellectual property attorney and focus on vegan cheesemaking. Raised in South Africa, Michael inherited his activism from his parents. His father, Harry Schwartz, was a key figure in the fight to end apartheid and a longtime friend and colleague of Nelson Mandela. Michael moved to the US in the 1980s at the height of apartheid's power, went to law school, and for over 25 years practiced IP law in Dallas, London, New York, and Washington. In 2012, he began to experiment with fermenting cashew nuts, culminating in the launch of Treeline, which is now a national brand available in grocery and specialty stores across the US, including Whole Foods, Kroger, and many independent health food stores and small chains. In this interview, Michael talks about how he got his first distributor and retailer, a process that involved losing a lot of money but was necessary, why learning to say no if you don't have the capacity or finances to fulfill orders is better for your brand in the long run? How a negative experience at trial during his lawyer days is the reason why Treeliners never failed to fulfill an order to date? Why the company doesn't use dairy cheese names such as Brie or Camembert for its products? And much more. Here's the interview with Michael Schwartz from Treeline Tree Nut Cheese. 
So, Michael, tell me about the the why, the background of, of why you do what you do. It's a question I ask everyone when I um, interview them for the show, and I love hearing about people's journeys, and you've got a particularly interesting journey because I know you're a former IP lawyer and you have a degree in engineering, and you now make this uh, amazing vegan cheese. So I'm interested about your why, and tell us a little about your journey of, of how you got here. I started the company because I felt very strongly about the plight of dairy cows and goats and sheep. Um, I think dairy is one of the, the most cruel foods that, that human beings have managed to produce. I was a vegetarian for many years and I was in denial of, of dairy because I thought, well, you're not eating the animals, so it's okay. And then when I started finding out more information about just how dairy is produced, I became very disturbed and felt that I had to give it up, number one. And then I really, like many other people, liked cheese. Um, I traveled a lot in Europe for work as an intellectual property lawyer, used to meet clients and have amazing French and Italian cheeses. (laughs) I missed those when I gave up dairy and I then put two and two together and saw that there was a gap in the market for that type of high quality cheese. So that's wow. really the, the why. It's interesting, actually, because I can relate to a lot of what you said. I, so I was vegetarian since I was 11, um, but it took me a long time to get to vegan um, because, you know, we buy the whole image of the happy cows and you think, oh, the cow isn't dying. Right. So I can definitely um, relate to that. And uh, my partner had a house in the south of France, so we used to go to France and, again, love the cheese. And when I went vegan 22 years ago, the vegan cheese has tasted like rubber. Um, so uh, it's really fun. I love the fact there's all these amazing new vegan cheeses coming out now. So it's interesting, you've, you've literally had such a big change of career, though, from an IP lawyer to making cheese in your kitchen, essentially, to then growing it into this global brand. So one might say, well, you could have used your skills as an IP lawyer to still help animals. So I'm, I'm just curious about how you got into making the cheese. It's such a, I'm going to make a pun now, a tree change. Um, just, yeah, how did that kind of come about? I, yeah, I don't really know. I... I had decided that I didn't really want to practice law. I just kind of ran out of steam and I was looking around for something interesting to do that would make me feel good about um, my daily work. I started a company with a client and friend of mine, which was not a food company, and that we had success in a very short time. That gave me some breathing space to to look around and I just I just saw that gap in the market so I I decided to do it but I I I don't know I don't think there was any kind of thought process that led me to it besides there's a gap in the market I'm vegan I like cheese why don't I try got it got it I love it so and I imagine your skills from your previous profession must have been helpful as a lawyer especially in terms of IP would that be right not especially. I think my engineering background helped a lot because it forced me into a kind of a discipline in in the development process. And it's also helped me with designing the plant, with understanding how our equipment works and debugging equipment. 
I, th I think the engineering, strange enough, has been more useful really? than the law. Oh, really? What about with contracts and things? <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> question because um, when you're a startup, you don't really get to negotiate contracts. Right, you just do what enough. you're told. Fair point, fair point. We'll get on to that, because that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. But it, let's just go back a bit. So when you were first starting out, what were some of your key challenges and how did you overcome them? I think the most difficult thing for a food startup is to get some sort of critical mass in retail so that you can then convince distributors to take your product and that's a, a real chicken and egg problem because they don't want you until you've got critical mass and you can't get the critical mass without them yeah so that I think that was probably the biggest challenge and how did you handle that so how did you go from because I think this is interesting for anyone who's starting up a, a plant-based product of any kind to go from that kind of artisanal you know in your home kind of thing to growing it as you have and getting into those big um, chains tell us a bit about that process what did it entail and okay, how did so you, go about you it? get yourself a uh, cooler with some cold packs and wheels on it and you get yourself some comfortable shoes <laughs> and you start walking around New York City trying to convince stores that they should take your product. Wow, wow. So you literally kind of did that physically on foot, you went to, to the big... I, I did. Not the big ones, the small ones. Small the big ones, ones weren't right. um, interested yet. And then my sales guide literally did the same thing in, in um, the Catskill region in Chicago and just went from door to door and eventually made appointments the, beforehand with like the buyers? sometimes yes sometimes no really okay. we also did a lot of um, cold calling uh, we shipped products by UPS to stores lost enormous amounts of money doing that really? but that, that's how we that's what we had to do to make it happen yeah yeah oh that's interesting so you literally kind of you went did the whole thing the the door-to-door um, so you started out, what I wrote right in thinking, you start out with the smaller places and then once the smaller places start to take you, then the bigger places start to take notice of you. Is that, is that how it works? Yeah, that's, that's how it works. And uh, I must say that Whole Foods helped a lot because Whole Foods has a program for local producers yeah. and they are open to taking in, taking products that are not known because they are local and it, they... I don't know if they still do it. I think they do, but that really helped an, an awful lot. Yeah. Um, because a larger chain, you know, like a, a Publix or Albertsons, just they don't really do that. And or at least to my knowledge, they don't. Yeah. It's interesting. In the keynote talk um, at this event this morning, one of the retailers, I think it was the woman from uh, Kroger, um, was saying that obviously shelf space is is finite being a physical retail store and one of the issues for them as retailers is when small brands come on board and their pop product is popular which obviously you want because it sells out but then they haven't got the capacity to keep filling those orders and then suddenly there's a period where they're out of stock and that's not good for the retailer uh, or the customers how did you handle it or how do you recommend that businesses handle that because like you said going from just you know producing enough for maybe farmers markets to producing 
interesting enough to regularly be on the shelves of supermarkets. Can you talk us through that a little bit about what's entailed? Uh, I think that really is a big issue. It has not been an issue for my company and this is something I feel very proud of. We have never failed to fill a purchase order and we will, we will do it. There's, there's, failure is not an option for us and that's because I've got a good team, I have an excellent general manager who, who also takes great pride in, in getting the job done every single week. Now, I think all I can say to startups like us is don't bite off more than you can chew because you'll end up with nothing. Um, and you know, if you find that you get a, an opportunity, you've got to look at that opportunity and work out if you can, in fact, deliver. And also, that's in terms of your capacity. And also, can you finance that? Because you're not going to get paid for quite some time. I was going to ask you and about that. So yeah. So you, you've got to be very careful about it. Now, I, I, I'm lucky. But, you know, Larry Bird, the great basketball player, said the better you are, the better luck you have. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's not just by accident that we are so reliable. It's, it's by design. And it, it's a very important part of our business. How did you put that in place? You've mentioned team. So did you get your team on quite early in your company? Because I know it's like taking on staff as you grow. Obviously, they're a key expense. So tell us a little bit about how you grew your team you know, there was no real magic to it. I, I, I lucked on some really good people, and um, I, I think they are highly motivated. They are good at their jobs, and I also just have a an attitude that I I don't handle failure very well, and I just don't. I don't. I really, really don't like losing. I, I hate losing. As a lawyer. <laughs> I once walked out of a hearing where I lost on every issue and I, I was walking out of the courthouse in downtown New York and I just felt so horrible. And then I stopped and I said, you're meant to feel horrible. If you, if you like losing, you're a loser. Don't become that person. And I said, it's okay, feel horrible. Just feel bad about this whole incident. And I think, that, I think that's important. That's in terms of them, what, what team members did you bring on first? The first um, people in our new sort of new manufacturing facility, the first guy was someone I brought in as a salesperson and uh, he then moved on to being operations. But I did the manufacturing myself physically okay. and I had hourly workers helping me, but I was actually, I, I've, done every, I've done. done every job in the factory, including mopping the floor. I mean, I, that's, that's what you've got to do. Yeah, it's interesting because we were just talking earlier before we uh, did this interview about the, the Fry family because you're both all from South Africa and Wally Fry, who's the founder of Fry, said pretty much the same thing. He did all those different um, jobs so that you appreciate um, what, what goes on. Uh, that's great. In terms of the... The retailers then, what are some of the challenges there? You mentioned one of them in that you don't get paid straight away. What are other, some of the other challenges involved that perhaps, you know, artisanal startups, you know, they might not realise? Um, what are some of the things you need to take into account when, when working with distributors and retailers? Well, I think the first thing is you've got to kind of get over yourself in the sense that a lot of small food manufacturers think they've got something fantastic and that the whole world's waiting for it. That is not the case. Okay, 
um, no one's really waiting for your product. You've got to convince them to buy it. Um, then you've also got to realize that you fit into a context and the context is something you mentioned that there's limited space and not everybody can be in the store and if you don't produce results you will be dropped. Yeah. Um, a, a challenge is that the food business is very much a legacy business and it's, it's not in the retail and distribution side, it's not that open to innovation because if you're selling something and you're doing okay on it why would you change that and it's quite hard to convince very conservative people in that industry to take a chance on a new way of doing things and vegan cheese really is a new way of doing things people have been making dairy cheese for as long as anyone can remember and it's so ingrained into our culture and to get a guy whose life has been buying dairy cheese and putting it on the shelf to suddenly say, well, let me try something that's completely different, that no, that's, has no record of sales because this guy thinks that he can sell it. That, that's difficult. Yeah, yeah, you can imagine. And in terms of creating the demand, I guess it's sounding like you, as a brand, have to do your own marketing and promotion um, so that people know about it so that they will then go into the stores and, and buy your product. So you can't rely on the supermarkets or the retailers to do the promotion or marketing for you. Is That's that right? completely correct. Yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. That's um, no, great. So on that then, what have been some of the marketing or promotional strategies that you've used to date that have been the most effective? Well, there's a, an old kind of um, story of a, a department store owner in New York who said, half of all my advertising money is wasted. I just don't know which half. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so that's true of any efforts you make. So w one of the things I've done a lot of is promoting the product through uh, vegan festivals and my thinking on that is that someone who goes to a vegan festival is typically a new vegan who's looking for new products and if we can offer our products at those festivals that's the exact audience that we want if we do a, a demo in a store 95% of the people who are in that store are not interested in our product. Whereas if we go to the veg Even fest, if you do taste testings? Even with taste testing, because they're not vegans and they are looking for their usual products that they know. And they will often taste the product, they'll even buy it, but that doesn't mean they'll buy it a second Again, time. Right, right. And you're also spending, you're spending 100% of your money going after maybe 5%, whereas with a veg fest, it's 100%, right? So that's, I think, a very powerful way of So in-person, physical marketing, you yeah. think it's been... Yeah, actually setting up a table, yeah. sampling the cheese, yeah. giving coupons, and then we also try to track the coupons so we can see where they've been redeemed, Got it. and uh, that way we know if that was effective. And then we do the usual social media. Uh, we do a lot of um, work which sort of does two things at the same time. One, I like to give to charities that help animals, and two, I like to market the product. So we do a lot of work with, for example, Physicians Committee for Responsible oh, yeah. Medicine, 
we sponsored a podcast for them. Uh, we serve our um, cheese at their fundraisers. Best Friends Animal Society, we serve at their fundraisers. Farm Sanctuary, we just sponsor. Last year we spon- and the year before, we sponsored uh, two calves where we matched donations to help those calves this year we're going to do something similar right. and that all and, creates the word of mouth right and, so, yeah. and those are our people and it also makes me happy that money from Treeline is going to those charities so am I right in thinking that I was going to ask you about your predominant audience demographic are you basically more or less aiming at vegans are they your predominant customer yes the, the vegans are the predominant customer however we don't think that we can grow the business as big as we'd like to if we exclusively have a vegan following. So we are trying to expand to so-called flexitarians. But at the same time, the people we most want are the vegans because those are the people who most want us. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I. What about I, the allergy department? Like dairy, people who've got allergy to dairy, are they another market for definitely you? Definitely. Paleo is a big market for oh, us. Okay. Um, but I think that our, our real core, our base is, is vegans and we that will be like that for a while. <laughs> and it's really not a bad thing because there are very few customer bases where new customers are being made every day yeah and there are yeah. new vegans every single day as yeah. more and more information comes out on the benefits of veganism for you for the planet for animals more and more people are doing it so we're focusing on a vegan base but that base is growing got it and you know there's no growing base for granola bars yeah, yeah. It's the same people that are buying the group. Yeah. Suddenly you don't wake up and go, I think I'll eat another yeah, yeah. bars today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So I'm guessing then, because another question I typically ask um, vegan entrepreneurs is the use of the word vegan in your branding and marketing. You know, some say, oh, no, it's better to use plant-based or, or nothing at all. I'm assuming that you're quite happy to use vegan on, on your branding and marketing. I'm perfectly happy to use it. Um, I, I, I Years ago I went to a, a talk by... A, guy named A.M. Rosenthal who was the publisher of the New York Times and when he joined the New York Times probably in the 1950s um, his boss said to him his name was Abe Rosenthal don't use the word Abe call yourself A.M. Abe is too Jewish okay and that struck me and I know I'm Jewish and I I I don't want to apologize for what I am and I'm not apologizing for being vegan Nice. So I, I am perfectly happy to use it and I was told not to by a lot of very smart people and I refused and um, I think today the, the word vegan is coming to connote quality and a, a, a product that someone um, can rely on as being a good product that does good things yeah. and in the end I think it's going to be a, a, a mark of quality rather than some sort of dirty words that people think have thought it is. Got it, got it. We are seeing a lot of new players in the market, like the vegan cheese category is exploding. You know, I was in Switzerland back in January, I tasted like a vegan version of brie or camembert. I never thought I would have that taste again. So it's it's really developing. Um, How do you continue to make tree lines stand apart? 
in the face of so-called competition. I put competition in quotes because in many ways the rising tide, you know, lifts all boats and helps the category. But how do you, yeah, how do you stay apart, uh, stand apart to keep your customers? Well, the, I think the most important thing is that we stick to a, a very clean label. Our products have very few ingredients and we don't add any um, coconut oil or um, gums or thickeners or anything like that. That we, we distinguish ourselves on the basis of being a very, very pure product. And that's most reflected in our latest new product, which is a what, cream cheese, which I call premium New York style cream cheese. Have you got samples out there? I have. I should be going to try some. <laughs> it's really good. It's sounding like, even just you describing me, I'm thinking that sounds nice. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's, it tastes amazing and it has very few ingredients. So that's what distinguishes us. I think ultimately more and more companies will do what we're doing. Another thing we are avoiding is we're avoiding trying to call our products by familiar cheese names so we're not trying to say this is brie or this is uh, gruyere we're just saying this is cheese made of cashew nuts so that the non-vegans won't say well that clearly isn't brie I know yeah. brie and yeah. it clearly isn't brie and I've seen this in France if you if you say to a Frenchman this stuff is brie he just laughs at you and says that's ridiculous but if you say why don't you try a new kind of cheese that's fermented cashew nuts yeah. he goes yeah that's that's interesting okay. interesting oh, that's, that's interesting cool um, so just finally a final couple of questions one is what would you say have been the key lessons that you've learned and any any advice you might offer to to upcoming entrepreneurs that's a um, difficult question to answer because there are so many lessons and bear in mind I did not come from a food background and I think one important lesson is that if you're starting a company in the food business and you don't have experience in the food business you probably should find someone to just sit down with and just find out about the business because it is a very unique business with its own way of doing things and uh, you can avoid a lot of frustration if you really have a good understanding of it to begin with and then I would say um, you've got to really maintain discipline and make sure that you don't get sidetracked with new products with new opportunities You've got to evaluate them all very coldly and um, uh, calculatedly to make sure that they don't distract you and they are going to make money for you. And a good example on this is you may get a store that wants to carry the product and you, you want to make a sale, but then you go and look at the store and you go, the people aren't really buying this product in the store this is the wrong demographic you've got to be able to say no and so I'll come to that maybe in a few years time I'll come to that but that's not right for us now that's really good advice it could be tempting and exciting almost flattering when someone comes to you that's that's really good advice one thing I, I, I forgot to ask you as much as you're comfortable sharing how's the company been funded to date it's been funded by me and um, I would say that if you start this type of company, whatever 
um, you think you're going to spend you're going to spend a lot. Yes, more. so many entrepreneurs have said the same thing. Whatever yeah. budget you set, you want to. I've heard people say times it by five. I've even heard people say times it by ten in some cases, which sounds really no. That's that sounds great advice. So just finally, then, what's the future for Treeline, for yourself and for Treeline? Uh, well, for myself, I hope it's uh, you know the south of France and <laughs> good food Introducing and wine. Introducing them to vegan cheese. <laughs> but for the company, I mean, we're going to grow very significantly in the next few years. I think we're going to cross over into the mainstream because we're we're riding on the uh, the crest of this plant-based wave and more and more people are open to plant-based foods so I, I see a tremendous growth in the next three or four years um, would you open would you because we've seen now some of the companies like beyond meat for example go public i think impossible are con considering or some others are considering is that something when you say you're going to expand considerably is that how you see yourself expanding with investment no, we, yeah with public? investment but not we're not going to go public okay. for quite some time right. i mean i think that's a long way off but um definitely we'll be taking in investments and from strategic investors and um we're moving into a new phase of growth from just being a fairly small company to being a, a really important company in vegan cheese and possibly other um, dairy substitutes. Wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you so much for talking with me, Michael. It's been great. And I'm going to look forward to going and try one of the, well, one or more of the samples. But thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So that was Michael Schwartz from Treeline Tree Nut Cheese. You can find out more at treelinecheese.com. And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 122. Now for some vegan business news highlights. Next generation vegan meat products are starting to take off in Australia. The Alternative Meat Company recently launched its new range of vegan burgers, sausages and mints, all of which are available in the chilled meat section of major supermarket chains. Now, I went to the VIP launch of the products, even though I'm not their market, because like Beyond Meat, they're aiming at people who currently eat meat and want something that tastes, smells, feels and cooks the same as animal-based proteins. But I spoke to several people at the event, including some mainstream media journalists, all of whom said they loved the products. One even said that she wouldn't have been able to tell the difference in a taste test. Meanwhile, Hungry Jack's fast food chain has teamed up with Federal Government Science and Research Agency, CSIRO, to create a vegan version of the chain's classic Whopper. Hungry Jack's founder, Jack Cowan, said the company is doing this in response to people's desire to eat in a more planet-friendly way. It's fantastic to see these kinds of products spreading across the globe. A vegan hotel is set to open in Scotland this month. That's June 2019, if you're listening in the future, reports Plant-Based News. Seorsa 1875 in Pitlochry is the brainchild of two vegans. Everything in the hotel is animal free, including bedding, toiletries and cleaning products. And the electricity is supplied by Vegan Society certified Ecotricity. 
Italian chef Luca Sordi is in charge of the kitchen and he'll use ingredients either sourced from the hotel's vegetable patch or independent local suppliers. The hotel will also collaborate with top vegan chefs from around the UK to create one-off dining experiences. So this is exciting and we're starting to see a trend in hotels recognising that consumers are looking for places to stay that are cruelty-free as well as environmentally friendly. In a previous episode, you may remember I reported on the Hilton Bankside in London creating a vegan suite and I anticipate we'll see more accommodation businesses follow suit. Fantastic. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more free resources as well as details of how we can work together to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. And I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now.